Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I'm Ross Kemp, and this is the Kemp Cast. In this podcast, I'm joined by guests from all walks of life who all have engaging stories to tell, whether it's about their life, their career, or their expertise. I hope that if you listen to this series, not only will you learn something about the guests, but also about the world we live in. As one of the many people who have uh, had COVID-19, I'm, I'm really pleased to welcome Oksana Pizik today. Uh, she is a global health advisor and the lead for the University College of London's Outbreak Educational Programme. Oksana, thank you so much uh, for joining me today. Um, the, the major question um, that, that people like me probably don't know, um, what is a virus and why and why does and how or how does a virus mutate? Well, a virus is a non-living organism and it is a it has genetic code encapsulated within it. But in order to survive, it needs a human host. Uh, otherwise, uh, the virus won't be able to uh, replicate further. Mutations are a part of a natural virus life cycle that very frequently mutates. Uh, that is to be expected. Not all mutations, however, within the virus are significant. Uh, quite rarely we see that viruses uh, actually have very significant mutations. So viruses are uh, something that we have been living with since essentially almost the beginning of time. If we think about even human species and the number of generations of, of our um, humans, it's about 15,000 generations of people that have walked the earth. Mm -hmm. And if we compare that to viruses, that's from cell to cell, every cycle that we look at, that's in the order of trillions. There are more viruses than stars in the sky. Uh, but again, only a, a really small fraction of them pose uh, a significant health risk uh, to humans. But when they do, we can see just how serious it is. Well, that's a question that I want to ask you. If, you, if, we, um, if we believe, and there's no reason why we shouldn't believe, that, that the Chinese authorities identified um, uh, the first death or, or said that the first death was around about January 11th, 2020. How have we got so quickly to what will be by the time this goes out 
100,000 deaths in the UK in that time? Well, that's a, that's a big question. Uh, when we think about what happened uh, in China where uh, there was a bit of delay in reporting, uh, we did see that the first whistleblowers were um, prevented from speaking to the world. However, a WHO was not allowed entry. The World Health, Health Organization were banned from going in, yeah. Uh, well, it, you need to be invited and they didn't receive that invitation. Uh, the WHO doesn't have the legal authority to just show up in a country and start investigating. Uh, they are a subsidiary body of the UN. So they have certain protocols that they legally need to follow. And they need to be invited by a government in order to conduct any type of investigation. And we know now that um, it took a year for that to occur. So despite sort of those initial delays where uh, we saw that big outbreak in Wuhan and it, people had the opportunity to essentially flee before the hard lockdown occurred in China, which is argu was arguably very successful. But by that point, it had already leaked uh, all over the world. We see, we live in a hugely globalized society now. So it's very quickly, we can carry one pathogen uh, from one side to the other. So it didn't take very long, but despite where it originated uh, and the debate around that question, the bigger issues that we had time, we saw what was going on in Italy and we saw that their healthcare system was overwhelmed. Uh, so despite uh, whatever misgivings or for instance, I'd say challenges that uh, the WHO had in trying to deal with the Chinese government. Uh, by that point, the, the WHO itself had rung the alarm around the world and we were seeing right our next door neighbors in Europe really struggling to cope with the virus. So uh, at that point, we could have had a stronger response and a series of lockdown and releases and not closing off our borders, very weak test and trace system, all essentially led towards what we currently have is the, the highest uh, or one of the highest uh, death rates per capita in the world, uh, over 100,000 people, which is hard to quantify. Imagine so many, what that looks like. There are many people that I've spoken to that we were, we were first talking off about herd immunity. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are some people that would argue that vulnerable people are no longer, and it's going to be quite harsh, but this is not my view. This is what yeah. I've heard. The vulnerable, the older people, you know, they're not going to look after the future. They've had their lives. Um, mm. Shouldn't we be looking after the workers, the people that are, are going to keep the economy buoyant? Um, and we shouldn't have lockdowns at all. Um, how would you answer those people? Well, I think there's, at this stage, we have plenty of examples where people, where countries that made the difficult decision to lock down hard and lock down early have uh, reopened almost all elements of their society while the UK is in their third lockdown. Uh, so economically within their own borders, uh, they're able to work towards that recovery. Uh, whereas this cycle of lockdown and release is, is becoming far more expensive. And really, I think that error link, we did get to the prevalence of the virus very low uh, in July uh, and after a fairly long initial lockdown period. This is when it would have been critical uh, to 
have a better grasp of border control. We are an island. We should have really been taking advantage of that uh, and sealing it off from international travelers or at least introducing quarantine measures uh, to the hotel, which are only now being discussed. And, and that's because at that point uh, in July is where new strains of the virus started to come in that have higher transmissibility, uh, leading to second and into the third extended wave. Uh, whereas other countries may have shifted towards, uh, instead of opening up all at once, did, did it in a more staged and phased fashion. So it gave uh, a, a slower opening up with some restrictions, uh, but actually over a longer period of time uh, has done more for their economy. So it's, I think it was very short-sighted. The problem with herd immunity uh, is that if we look at many infectious diseases, so uh, smallpox, uh, malaria, uh, yellow fever, the plague, in, any, in all of these instances, uh, most infectious diseases, you don't just build a natural tolerance. We either developed a, a vaccine, so in smallpox it eradicated it, and the word polio is another excellent example, or we were able to uh, introduce other public health measures uh, that also suppressed the amount of transmission. So um, that concept uh, in the end was perhaps fatally flawed. And uh, in terms of the, the test and trace, we still, uh, despite the huge price tag and the, the privatization of, uh, instead of using public health bodies to be able to run those services with the intimate knowledge of their own communities, it was outsourced, uh, outsourced to private companies. And it, still um, not functioning properly. So that's going to have to change if we don't want to, uh, we were looking at this vaccination campaign and hopefully it's going to, we're going to reach that critical point by December uh, so that we're not in the same situation for yet another winter. And that is a scary thing to, to discuss. Uh, and does the fact that we are such a, uh, a populated island um, have an effect on the rate? Uh, certainly. In, at the beginning, you know, any hugely urbanized center, a high population, uh, we'll see the spread of disease can uh, just rip through the population much more quickly. Uh, but again, we did actually, in that summer period, we were able to bring those levels back down, yes, through uh, very harsh measures, uh, but it was sort of the reopening of everything that uh, without thinking about what the consequences would be in the, we were debating whether would e there would even be a second wave uh, and spending a lot of time in this circular debate, perhaps with wishful thinking, instead of getting prepared. Um, we've seen uh, MERS, we've had SARS, um, I think it's severe acute respiratory syndrome, Middle Eastern respiratory syndrome. I looked up before I, I chatted to you and there was like 800 deaths, 700 deaths. And I can remember the news around those pandem or pandemics saying, you know, this is going to wipe out, um, you know, the rest of the world. This is going to be what we're effectively seeing with COVID and it never happened. Why is COVID so deadly? This branch of COVID, COVID-19. Well, MERS is about 10 times more deadly than COVID, but that's actually ironically or counterintuitively, it's weakness. It's because it makes the host, the human, so sick and ill that ultimately they're confined to their bed or they die very quickly. And they're, therefore they're not able to spread it so rapidly. We, we see that with COVID there's significant amount of asymptomatic transmission. 
Um, there are a significant amount of people who only have mild forms of the disease. So that combination of it being highly transmissible as well as uh, the majority of the population exhibiting only mild symptoms means that it'll the, the remaining 20%, which are uh, highly vulnerable, uh, are far more at risk uh, than with any of these uh, SARS or MERS. For instance, you know, if you combine SARS and MERS together, the total death rate um, throughout the entire pandemic, it would have been two days worth of just the deaths in the UK starting in the beginning of January. So just for my, to explain to me very simply, basically the reason, because it's not as lethal as those other viruses, that's why it's actually killed more people. Yes, it's, it's counterintuitive. So it's able to affect more people in the world. If we look mm. at SARS and MERS, it was contained to 20 some countries, unlike COVID, which is in every uh, country in the world. And, and that's because uh, it essentially either killed off the host or made them so ill they wouldn't be able to spread it around. So the global death toll uh, ended up being far less. Now, if we had MERS on the same scale as COVID, then we would see far more deaths, but it's harder for it to, for that transmission to occur because uh, people are just too ill. Okay, that's what I wanted to know, and now I know. Um, <laughs> just going back to um, the UK again. So, as again, hindsight's a fantastic thing, but you believe that we should have locked down earlier and longer. Should we have had um, the day of Christmas or the day, the, the, day, the two days, I think, that we had to, to meet family members? Or should we have just bitten the bullet on that and um, not had that at all? There was some briefing on the transmissibility aspect of B117, but there wasn't yet evidence to say that it had a higher mortality associated with it. So I think that uh, while people felt they needed a respite from you know, the, the loneliness of isolation, uh, and perhaps that was more of a political move than it was a scientific one. Well, the government always has to play that 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 walk that tightrope between um, its own popularity and you know. Well, canceling Christmas is never going to be popular. <laughs> no, of course not. We, we talk about this one one seven. That's the new strain that mutated in the UK. We have another strain, as far as I know, in South Africa. That's mainly contained to Africa. Um, and we have a strain in, in Brazil that is different. Do you think there are more strains out there? And, and potentially could they be more transmittable and therefore maybe possibly more lethal? Well, the UK is uh, leading in genome sequencing. So uh, we are able to identify these different strains at a rate of 10 times any other country. Uh, so, so we're getting something, right? There we go. We, we, yeah, we are good well, at something. No, I, yes, I mean, credit where credit is due. The, the UK has done an excellent job in genome sequencing and being able to identify uh, these various strains. And again, that's at a rate of uh, 10 times any other country that they're doing that. But at the same time, we do need to ensure that other countries have the resources to be able to identify them because then we're, we're kind of operating in the dark. We have no idea uh, how many strains are out there, where they are, the evidence around how transmissible or deadly they are. Uh, and th I think the scariest thing people are deeply worried about is whether that could lead to um, 
the vaccine, it be, being vaccine resistant, uh, which is really our, where most of the hope of getting out of this is being pinned on. Yeah, so let's, let's talk about those. Are we right to pin so much hope on, on the, the three vaccines that are presently out there? I think it's three. Well, it's going to take a long time for us to reach a point in which there, the, the mass benefit of vaccination uh, will be felt by um, the country. So until we reach that point, we, we can't just think, uh, oh, we can relax now. There's you know, three vaccines that are available to us um, and you know, I can carry on with my normal life now. It's, uh, it's still, we're for the foreseeable future. And I think travel will be changed uh, fundamentally for a very long time, uh, particularly as other countries have uh, either dealt with it better or worse. Um, and I think that it's, it is, at least in the sh if we look in a matter of months, certainly we're not going to be uh, able to, to just snap back. So uh, although virus, the, vir uh, the vaccine is the end game, this will end the pandemic, it's gonna take some time to get there, which means all of the other things that we are doing, which are very tough, uh, need to continue to be done until we get to that saturation point. So you're talking about lockdown, about wearing masks, about sanitation, about social distancing, all the things that people should be um, abiding by. Can I say one thing I see quite a lot, which yes. having been into an ICU, sadly, in, in, in spring, um, and, and have seen people intubated, um, why do people wear masks underneath their noses? You see people wearing a mask on their noses. Uh, could you just, just explain to me, or explain to those people, why that is possibly not the best thing to do? Well, you're putting yourself uh, and others again at risk. If you are already um, wearing the face mask, then it makes very little sense not to, to cover both your nose and mouth because uh, you're, you're breathing in respiratory droplets and aerosols that um, can pass on the infection and, and that that is the main form of transmission above and above, far beyond touching infected surfaces and when you breathe out you could uh, equally put out a stream of uh, virus particles that will get someone else into an ICU so it's not just about uh, you know protecting yourself it's also pr protecting others and even in the U.S. now they're saying that cloth masks uh they're, they're looking to try and get medical grade masks to as many people as possible uh, to, to work better against um, these, the aerosol. People also wearing masks where they're, where they're bent here and there's a massive spray. So should you be carrying the virus, those droplets can leave. And, and let's be clear, someone said to me that, that the virus mm -hmm. is actually smaller than the band of, of light, a band of light. So it's absolutely minuscule and that's why it can float in the air for mm -hmm. a period of time and, and travel as we say nearly two meters I don't know how we've defined that it's two meters it could be further depending on what, which way the wind's blowing or how hot or cold it is that particular day right they're even suggesting double masking in the U.S. I saw that at the inauguration I saw some of them wearing double masks yeah uh, and that's uh, the that as we're learning more and more about the virus it, it's uh, appearing that uh, we need stronger interventions. And at the beginning, uh, we, we do know that WHO uh, did not advise on it 
partly because of lack of understanding about the transmission, but now we know. So there's really no excuse. Uh, at the beginning, we also had a PPE shortage. So people didn't have the protective equipment. Again, mm. we're, we're down the line now. So hopefully uh, people can play their part uh, in, in wearing it, especially if uh, you already have it on, then just that little bit of uh, moving it just up an inch uh, is so important. And uh, you know, you really do get used to it. It's, it's deeply uncomfortable at the beginning, but you know, it's, it's such a habit now. It's, uh, you're, you're leaving your house, it's phone, keys, mask. Um, moving on from that. So we're uh, globally, um, 100, is it 100 million infections? and just over 2 million deaths globally. Um, if you work that out, two, 2 million in 100 million, that's two every 100 persons or one in 50. Is that the ratio? If 50 people contract uh, COVID-19, then one person will die of it? Is that a realistic kind of percentage or, or comparison? Well, it really depends on many factors. And one of those uh, is certainly around your individual level of risk. So we're talking about age, we're talking about genetics. We know that BAME groups also have uh, much worse health outcomes. Uh, they're more susceptible to the virus itself. Uh, if you have diabetes, um, high blood pressure, all of these other conditions uh, that we don't think about as life-threatening in normal times now, uh, with so many people, uh, you know, again, heart disease is the number one cause of death in the world, above, above and beyond cancer. Um, and so there are many people who might not really consider themselves to be vulnerable. You know, they might be a little bit overweight. They might not even know that they have uh, one of these early conditions yet. Uh, so they wouldn't expect themselves to be in ICU. And uh, no one wants to be really unpleasantly surprised by that. The other aspect, of course, is sort of the income inequality. People who are um, more exposed to it, for instance, uh, people in service jobs who don't have the option to work from home, people, the people who are stocking our shelves and taking out our trash and driving cabs, uh, they are the ones who are being exposed to the greatest number of people and each interaction is a potential point in which you could get infected. So you think about that, that massively increases uh, your risk. And it's not just that, it's who's that person been around uh, as well, crowded living conditions. So, so I ask you I ask you this question and I, and I don't just apply it to the UK though. We know that, you know, if you're a taxi driver, if, if you work in a, in a restaurant when they were open, if you worked, you know, in a factory, you were three times more likely to contract COVID than if you didn't. Are you more likely to get it if you're on a lower income? If you're having to work, maybe because if you don't work, then you don't eat. Certainly, I mean that goes without question. I mean that the level of exposure is much higher. Uh, we heard at the beginning that COVID would be the great equalizer because uh, you know it could affect everybody equally. But what we're seeing is that that's actually not the case. That people who are again earning more, who have more flexibility in their jobs, etc., um, will uh, be less likely to get it. Or if they do, they might have access to better health care as well. Um, and that's particularly true in countries like the United States. Yeah, you're, you're seeing a wealth comparison in terms of people who survive and people who die. Yeah. Yeah. And this access to you know, it, it, it here again, I, I can't. Uh, this is why the NHS is such a valuable resource. And, and we in January have reached uh, such a critical point that I, 
I, I don't think people quite understand how on the brink our services have been, how stretched. Uh, the virus replicates exponentially, but our workforce and people who are qualified to treat people, people who know how to operate ventilators, does not grow exponentially. No. We have a set number of humans uh, who yeah. can help us in this scenario. Who are specialized to do that. And they, and I, you know, was fortunate enough, fortunate enough, sorry, to, to see um, the, the love and the care and the sacrifice made by people in ICUs, you know, working, you know, nonstop for 48 hours, wearing PPE all that time, triple lots of PPE, you know, I remember going into that war was, it felt like going, you know, out of a, out of a spaceship, out into the, you know, into the atmosphere, or not the atmosphere, out into space, sorry. You know, it, um, and to wear that day in, day out and work, you know, 48 hour shifts. And also knowing that a lot of their colleagues were contracting it because when you were intubating people, they, they first found out that people naturally cough back. So this person, he was, he was highly infectious, was, was choking back every time they put a tube down, even though that person was, was probably made to be unconscious at that point. Um, yeah, it's like the automatic reflex. Yeah, um, but I know there are some people out there, Oksana, that are reluctant to to have the vaccine. What would you say to them? Well, I think they're asking perfectly rational questions. You know, of course, people want to be sure that the product, the medicine that they're taking, is safe. And it is true that this vaccine has been developed at an unprecedented rate. But we also have to consider that we're living in unprecedented times. Uh, the pharmaceutical companies and manufacturers have never had this amount of uh, resources available to them, this amount of support. Uh, and it's not just funding uh, as well. I mean, they're, they're sharing uh, a lot of knowledge and talent. If we think about uh, when the virus was first identified, it, was within three days, the entire virus uh, was, they, they digitally mapped the genome and that was made available to everybody in the world. And then you know, six to eight weeks after that, you know, they got the, the first clinical trial up and running. And no steps in the clinical trial were actually skipped. Uh, it, what we were able to do was uh, again, you know, over 40, for just the Pfizer vaccine, over 45,000 people were included in those clinical trials. Uh, but again, you, in typical times, unfortunately, pharmaceutical companies are uh, oriented towards what the market demands and market demands things like uh, diabetes medication, heart medication, Viagra, for instance, you know, those are the blockbuster drugs. They're, they might not be as focused on vaccine development. Uh, but in this instance, with all barriers removed, the world had essentially screeched to a halt. It just shows what scientific innovation is possible in, you know, urgency is just like such an understatement. Um, so the, the, the science, again, built off of pre-existing knowledge, this was not a blank slate, no steps were skipped. And the MHRA here in the UK is one of the best regulatory bodies in the world. And I fundamentally trust that they are able to do their job sufficiently and that they would never endorse a vaccine that isn't safe, that the data is there. There is no way that this clinical trial for the AstraZeneca vaccine, any of the others, um, th these are scrutinized to, to a degree 
that has never happened in history. They will be looked at more carefully than any other medicine that's come to market. Uh, so, so that's one thing. And also vaccines have to pass a higher level of safety than any other medicine. So we also have to consider that. I've been asked all sorts of questions like, you know, do I have to worry about infertility and things like this? Well, no vaccine has ever been linked to, to infertility. Um, so certainly I would be convinced that uh, to take the vaccine myself, as well as uh, the fact that it will reduce the, any types of symptoms that you might experience. Uh, so even people who uh, feel that they aren't at risk uh, you are much more at risk of severe outcomes from COVID than anything related to the vaccine. Uh, you know, if you balance up, what are the risks? Risks of getting coronavirus, risks related to uh, the vaccine itself. Uh, I mean, the, the, the risks with COVID are much greater. Do you think it should be mandatory? Well, I hope that uh, we're able to show and demonstrate how efficacious these, you know, how effective these vaccines are. I think that if you make it mandatory, um, people may, again, especially in countries like the UK, etc., find that bit difficult to uh, take on board. I, I think we can get there without having to make it mandatory. I think, uh, you know, the, the level of uh, anti true anti-vaxxers in the UK is actually, they're the minority. Well, there's this middle group vaccine hesitancy, people who've got questions. And you know what, they should be asking these questions and uh, speaking to or, or, or reading what's been made available from various experts that are involved in these clinical trials. Uh, you know, that's perfectly rational. Uh, but once you, know, you see the burden of evidence on, on what the risks are, I think the, the maj vast majority of these vaccine hesitant people will be pushed towards, you know, I think this is a really good idea. Uh, or, you know, I definitely don't want um, to be making my family sick by, for instance, not getting it. So again, I think that uh, with the vaccine itself, it's, it is something that is new but it is something that uh, we have developed based on decades of scientific research. I can't emphasize that enough. Every discovery is, is, is sort of incremental progress. So it wasn't something that was you know, done overnight. Uh, this mRNA technology has been um, touted by scientists for, for, for a very long time, but this incentivization and the support just hasn't been there. And I think that's maybe something that you know, the market factors get a bit ignored about what types of medicines um, get created. There's no vaccine for uh, SARS or MERS because, well, sadly, not enough people died. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Look, I, I don't want to point the finger at anybody, really. Uh, but, you know, there is that, that question that I think really needs to be answered. And, and, and you know, possibly who knows. But do you think we'll ever find out uh, where this virus actually came from? Did it come from a wet market in Wuhan or did it come from a laboratory? Well, uh, this question of the, the origin of the virus is one that uh, the WHO is investigating. Unfortunately, uh, they have uh, only just been granted entry within the country in, in the last month. So uh, to get to the, the very bottom of it will be will be very difficult. But it is more it is likely that this is uh, has jumped uh, from an animal to an intermediary host and then and then to humans. So through zoonotic transmission, because this is how we see um, uh, many viruses uh, get really crossing species. Uh, and we've had it with uh, Ebola where a bat is also suspected to be um, the, the vector, but we don't know for certain. And I, I don't think that we can say that we'll really understand uh, for certain uh, exactly the uh, zoonotic transmission, which animal is responsible for it. As far as um, you know, the, the theories about it emerging from a lab, uh, I think that uh, due to the uh, typical amounts of uh, high level of security involved in working with viruses uh, makes it unlikely. And that uh, although people are able to um, create uh, viruses in the lab uh, for various types of uh, let's say basic um, tools. So, so we, we can uh, create viruses, that's certainly scientifically possible. Uh, but uh, again, it's far more likely that uh, this was through uh, the zoonotic transmission through animals um, in which, um, again, these exotic uh, types of markets have been indicated with the, for other types of viruses uh, in the past as well. And we do see that as a deforestation, as urbanization starts to grow, um, that animals like bats are driven out of you know, their natural habitats uh, and uh, end up becoming closer and closer towards people. So then that risk of transmission increases. Uh, but uh, equally, I think for the WHO to, to definitively say exactly where uh, and what happened, um, you know, we might not ever get that answer, but at this stage, what our, what our focus should be is on saving as many lives as possible. Are we getting a true? I mean, I think fair play, uh, there's gonna be critics of the government here for, for maybe being reactive, but you know, as I say, hindsight's a fantastic thing, but we've been pretty honest and pretty out there about how many people are infected, um, yeah. about how many people have died, um, I don't mm -hmm. think, having travelled the world a bit, that other countries are being um, as open or, or maybe don't even actually know. 
um, well, just how many yeah. people are infected and how many people are dying. Do you think that's that's true to say? And that there may be other parts of the world right now that are suffering higher death rates. We just don't know about them. We're not seeing, we're not getting news from those places because people just can't get to those places and it's too dangerous to go there. Well, I think certainly you need to have resources to be able to carry out uh, the testing and to get an accurate picture of how many people are infected. Uh, and you have to have an accurate system then of linking it to those to the deaths that we're seeing in the country. So certainly one aspect of it uh, is just having the money and the resources to do all of this basic public health work. I mean, you're going off of, uh, you know, countries just don't even have enough health workers in some instance, let alone uh, specialized health workers and epidemiology to be able to do this. So, so that's one aspect to consider. And then there might also be political motivations not to report. Uh, Absolutely. I, I think a lot of countries would see it as being a weakness to admit to probably the death, the death rate that they're probably actually experiencing right now. I think that's that's going to be a part of the picture and, and one that we're not going to be easy, easily stamped out. Uh, but I think we have an, enough evidence in, in many, let's say the global north to see that uh, it is uh, spreading at a rate that is extremely worrying. And I think even in the US now, uh, perhaps they are not realizing to quite what extent uh, the, the, the problem is that they're facing because they still have uh, open borders and are looking at, uh, again, it is one of the countries, the largest inequalities as well. So that's one aspect to consider. Uh, I think they're really putting their eggs in this vaccine basket and uh, driving ahead. But unfortunately, the low-income countries, uh, aren't getting access. And uh, they're in the beginning of January, I think we saw a report where in total, if you combine high income countries, and, and this number would be even larger now because the UK has been uh, aggressively vaccinating, but 39 million people vaccinated. And in low income countries combined in total, 25. So 25,000 or 25 million, it's 25 in total. 25 people? Yes in low in the poorest countries. 25 people? Yes. <sighs> so that's a moral catastrophic Is It's not just a poor person's disease, it's a poor country's disease. And, and surely, if you're ever going to be a global pandemic, you have to look at it globally. And you have to make sure that the, the vaccine is rolled out globally. Otherwise, infections are going to carry on and mutations will carry on. Absolutely. You're 100% right that we need a global solution. It's very short-sighted just to think about, uh, you know, the, the immediate area that uh, concerns you because it'll just seep back into the borders. And, and for how long will you seal yourself off from the rest of the world? I mean, we know New Zealand plan has no plans to reopen for 2021, but we can't go on for like that for decades. We, we have an interlinked economy. 75% of uh, low and middle income, uh, or at least 75% of uh, global growth is contributed by uh, low and middle income countries. So, uh, you know, it's a false economy to, to just rely on uh, these 
the, these isolationist policies. So although there's been a lot of lip service in saying that we're going to share the vaccine, what we're seeing is very similar to what happened in 2009 with the swine flu pandemic where um, promises were made, but countries uh, were hoarding vaccines. And um, I think that uh, that is, Again, I agree with the World Health Organization uh, Director General, Dr. Tedros, who had said that, you know, the world is facing a moral catastrophe and it's a, it, and it is a failure for us to uh, just allow so many people to be left behind. I mean, certainly vaccinate the vulnerable and the elderly within your borders, but uh, I would personally, having had uh, coronavirus in, in December, uh, would be happy for my turn to be, to, do, to wait a bit longer to get it uh, and have my vaccine go to a frontline healthcare worker in a poor country that would otherwise die uh, and get mine maybe six months later. Um, and on top of that, there's also a big funding gap. So countries also are, meet the, the finances to be able to buy the vaccines. One of the things that I just, you know, again, you, you get such conflicting information and, uh, and I'd like to ask your view on it. So you've had COVID, I've had COVID. Um, we were told to isolate. People will say, if you look at the, the thing, it says, so once you've been tested for it and it's proved positive, you have to wait for yourself to develop symptoms and then isolate for 10 days. But if you look at other adv advice, it says you may not display symptoms for 12 days. So how does that make sense? Because if I get to 10 days and I've done my time in isolation since I was diagnosed with, with the infection, I'm out in society. But on day 11 or day 12, I may start displaying symptoms and I would still be spreading the virus. So how does a 10 day, 12 day thing work? Or doesn't it work? I, the WHO actually recommends a, a, a more conservative isolation period. So they, they recommend 14 days. Uh, and that's to allow for late appearances of symptoms. But typically what, with the incubation period is about five to six days. So we would expect uh, someone who's been exposed to start to, um, well, either they test positive uh, and at that rate, you know, the UK government thinks it's safe for it to be 10 days uh, from testing positive or 10 days from your first symptoms, right? So I had symptoms um, and it took a while for the test to come. So I would include the day of which I first started exhibiting symptoms and then 10 days from that point. Um, but if you still, so it, it's much more tricky with anyone who has asymptomatic because they just don't know. Um, and so I think that Per, going with a WHO recommendation of 14 days is probably a safer um, alternative. But they also do say that uh, if you're hospitalized, the other recommendation is that you should have uh, a, a negative test upon leaving and have been symptom-free for at least three days. But with the turnover of beds and, and the people, the, just the demand on the service, it's not been realistic. Again, it, it, there's this conflicting information about what is the right and what is the wrong thing to do. Um, on the basis as well of, of having it, um, I mean, I'll share with you what happened to me. So I felt I was going to visit my parents uh, for the first time in a long time. I thought it was the right thing to have a test because they're in, I wasn't going 
go and see them. I was going to see them for a window, but I, was yeah. gonna, I haven't seen them since February um, of last year. And I, my wife rightly told me to have a test. I had a test and it was positive. Oh, wow. Um, I had no symptoms. Oh, wow. On the, on the Thursday or the Friday, Saturday evening, I was laying on bed, <laughs> counting oh. my breath to make sure that I could actually exhale and inhale properly. Um, complete, um, like the plug being pulled from the socket in terms of energy, absolutely fine one moment, then totally had to go and lie down. Um, wow. Water tasted like metal to me. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, very odd taste. And also um, tea, I had a cup of tea, it tasted very salty. Now there's no salt in tea as far as I know, unless I've been using the spoon to distribute salt. Um, so yeah, taste weird, um, definitely lack of energy. Um, one of the things I've read is that three quarters of the people who, who, who contract COVID um, display one of the symptoms for up to six months after infection. Yeah, and, and, and uh, fatigue and muscle aches is the most common. Uh, so we see about 63% of people uh, six months down the line still have fatigue and still have muscle aches. Uh, about 13% of people have abnormal kidney function as well. And these are studies that have you know, been carried out over time. But as we continue for these cohort studies to analyze uh, the effect of the disease, we'll be able to get even more information about understanding what is called long COVID. Um, and I, there is a lot of individual uh, individual variability from person to person uh, in terms of their experience of COVID. I would say to anyone who, uh, uh, e even if you don't have COVID at, at this point, given that uh, it's in, in, well, in high circulation, that I would recommend they buy a pulse oximeter uh, so that they could uh, read their oxygen saturation levels uh, because you don't necessarily need to be gasping for breath to have low oxygen. You just- You're very unaware of it, can't you? You can be very unaware of it. Yes, I mean, you might feel a bit tired. You might get a bit confused. Uh, and that's the problem when you're um, a little bit delirious, let's say, uh, you don't realize that. So um, people who have ended up needing to get oxygen treatment in uh, hospitals uh, didn't necessarily demonstrate the typical symptoms. And uh, it's funny you mentioned this taste disturbance because I had that terribly. Uh, I couldn't, uh, uh, meat tasted like formaldehyde. I, you know, again, uh, barely could drink anything. Uh, and, and that was, from that experience, I, I mean, I had a, I was knocked out for like two weeks. <laughs> so, uh, and uh, it, it's uh, something again with it, that t sense of smell, which they didn't catch on to early uh, in the beginning. They didn't even list it as an official sym symptom. It, it, it took a while to, to I have that in the population for them to, to recognize that that could be a potential symptom. So uh, I think, again, there's this, uh, some people will have much more struggle have much more problems uh, breathing and things like that that wasn't my experience uh but it could be much more widespread than that so uh, again i think people should just be aware that uh, it's not just a cough and and be get tested as soon as they feel that something isn't to you know whether that's their sense of smell isn't quite right or their sense of taste because that was my earliest symptom was my sense of taste changed do you think that uh, we should be doing more to prepare 
um, for an outcome that will be people having psychological problems down the line, mental health issues down the line, not, not just because they may have had COVID or because they've lost someone that they love, but just because we've been in lockdown or some people, the vulnerable, have been in lockdown for so long now that we should be, well, we're borrowing money um, at a very vast rate at the moment and I understand why, why we have to, but shouldn't we be making some kind of preparations for what happens after COVID? Should there be an after COVID, which hopefully there will be? Well, I think we're in the UK. It's been largely ignored this the mental health side of uh, the pandemic, uh, the uncertainty, the anxiety that comes with that uncertainty, uh, the constant changing of the rules. Uh, that's affected many people in, in a negative way, and we shouldn't just be waiting till after COVID. Right now, we need to be investing. The government needs to be putting much more money into ensuring that uh, people who are isolated and lonely are um, you know, being checked up on. In New York, they have programs like this. Uh, and for some people as well, when we, we talked earlier about uh, people not having the, the option to, they don't wanna get tested in case it comes potentially positive and they lose income. So we need to also, in that instance, pay people that so that their job is to, to stay at home and isolate and not infect anyone else. And, you know, if you're a student and you're living in a situation where uh, you could potentially infect a flatmate, again, in New York, they would take you out, they would pay for your cab, they'd put you up in a hotel uh, so that you don't infect your loved ones or, or your um, flatmates. And all of these things, I think, if you feel supported, if you have um, access to various, you know, even practical things, that could also relieve the burden. I mean, loneliness is one part of the equation as well. And um, I think that many of the mental health programs have unfortunately either been um, not getting any more funding or, or being shut down when the opposite needs to happen, when we really need to be aggressively um, doing everything that we can. It's a difficult circumstance, but that doesn't mean that we can't create uh, new types of interventions to support people during this crisis and then afterwards as well. Yeah, I, I think maybe government might argue that, you know, saving lives now is more important than, than when we'll deal with, we'll deal with the next hurdle as we, as we get to it. But um, I do agree. I think, look, it's not just about the virus. It's also about the financial pressures that so many people are faced with now. You know, people are having sleepless nights worried about how they're going to pay the mortgage. And it's not, you know, when I, I did a program about volunteers and, and I went to a food bank in a quite a, 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 sorry affluent area um, of, of um, Buckinghamshire. And there were people turning up to get food in, you know, virtually brand new Mercedes. Um, because like many people, we've been encouraged to live up to our income, the max of our income. You know, the house is heavily mortgaged, the, the car is on loan and it's about... The, the image that you present to make yourself more successful, but you're very, very close to going into the red all the time. And this virus comes along. And I think it's, it's put a lot of pressure on families who are already under pressure. Um, and, you know, people simply didn't have enough money to, to feed themselves. And I think that's also why, uh, you know, where there is political will to support its population, uh, you know, these finances will be found. I mean, we were able to bail out banks for billions uh, for doing 
unethical things that we should be supporting small families and small businesses um, to, to be able to survive. I mean, that's what the purpose of a society is, uh, is to be able to create these safety nets. So I, I think that, uh, again, uh, there really isn't an excuse for a country like the UK not to look after its own citizens uh, in a crisis like this. Uh, there's uh, the, the pull yourself up by your bootstraps philosophy isn't exactly applicable uh, in this scenario. And I think that is one thing that's overlooked is that actually we, we would be able to, to support these people. Um, and that uh, once we are able to control the situation, uh, that's when we'll see a uh, flourishing of, uh, of the, not only health, but all the other uh, aspects that come with um, a growing economy. And, I think that when we look at the, there's this flawed philosophy of lockdown, anti-lockdown, uh, when really we should be looking at when, when COVID cases rise, all non-COVID related uh, aspects are also then jeopardized uh, because it means that, you know, there's uh, other health services that can't go ahead because all the doctors are, and nurses are busy with COVID patients. Um, so I think we need to move away from that and just look at you know, this non-COVID related harm rises alongside increased cases of COVID. So if we can, in the short term, uh, try and suppress transmission, it means that later we will be in a better position um, in many ways because things will be able to resume back to full and normal service, perhaps without international travel, but I think that's a small price to pay uh, than thinking about constant cycle of locking down every winter. On that cheerful note, Oksana, thank you so much. Uh, it has been enlightening and thank you for giving up your time to talk to me. Thanks, Ross. It's been a real pleasure, and um, I really hope that uh, you know we're we're going to get to the, see the end of the light of the tunnel soon. Uh, I think the UK government is making you know slowly getting there in terms of the, making better decisions, and hopefully some lessons have been learned uh, for for the future. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Kempcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate and review. You can find me on Twitter at Ross Kemp and on Instagram at Ross Kemp TV. This has been a Freshwater and the Chance of Collective production. And until the next episode, goodbye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.